Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Falgach. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Usatalo from Northern State University in South Dakota. He is here to talk about his most recent book, The Invention of Mikhail Limonosov, A Russian National Myth. This book is brought to you by Academic Studies Press as part of their Imperial Encounters in Russian History series. In this book, Dr. Usutalo talks about Mikhail Lomonosov, the scientific and literary figure. Dr. Usutalo also talks about the memory of Mikhail Lomonosov and its importance on Russian history. His reputation was transformed from that of poet to the father of Russian science. The way he is remembered is important to Dr. Usutalo as it demonstrates the power of biographies and the power of national myth. Here to talk more about the book is Dr. Usutalo. Stephen, so before you tell us uh, more about Lomonosov in your book, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and then maybe how you came to write the book. What were the inspirations for coming to write a book about Lomonosov's and Lomonosov's memory? I, I'm an associate professor of history at Northern State University in South Dakota. I started, in, I guess in, I'll start at the beginning, I suppose. My interest in Russia sort of comes from a... I was born in Finland, and I grew up in Finland, and I first went, I, I, you know, you have to know a little bit about Finland to know my interests. When I grew up in Finland in the 70s, Soviet Union was an overwhelming presence in Finland, but academically, it was a blank slate. The only interest that people in Finland had in Soviet Union was in trade, in economics, and business, and there was some back and forth. And I had, I, I had a uncle by marriage who was a sort of a member of the Finnish Communist Party, which was, that, that's a whole different story about the Finnish Communist Party. But uh, I remember at one point him going with him and his, my aunt to some celebrations in Leningrad in the late 70s. And I mean, it's a bare memory to me, by the way. Bare, I, I was so young. And at that time, most Finns despised the Soviet Union. So therefore, I loved it. <laughs> I found everything really fascinating about it. I would travel around then Leningrad and met some people who were connected with Finns. If you know anything about Finland, most of the Finns who went back then went to buy cheap alcohol and cigarettes. And they were, they were short journeys. They went for four days, and then they went back to Finland. But there were some people who were interested in the country, the history, the politics, and so forth. And to a degree, for me, the Soviet Union represented an alternative universe – Partially because my father, who was – he's Finnish, but he lived in the States. It was sort of an alternative to the U.S. as well, right? And for somebody young and ignorant like myself who didn't know the language for many years and didn't know the country, Soviet Union represented this this ideal place where people discussed ideas and it was endlessly fascinating, a mystery. But you couldn't study it in Finland. The language is rarely taught. And we, we, the only historian at the University of Helsinki was an American who was a docent or part-timer back then. So uh, my family wanted to move to the States, which was lucky in some sense academically. 
And uh, my father worked for Ford Motor Company, so we wound up in Detroit, and I, which was a nice shift, as, I guess. And I went to the University of Michigan as an undergraduate. And University of Michigan had a wonderful Russian history program. Uh, so I studied, started to study the language seriously and, and came across some wonderful historians like Ronald Suni and William Rosenberg and a few, a few others. And they had a full gamut, you know, several historians in the field. But it was still pretty unclear. You know, I, was, so I, wasn't, I wasn't aiming for grad school. I, I finished and I went back to Finland and I did a master's degree in, in political history. And then I, in Finland, they created several Russian studies institutes at the time. And these Russian studies institutes started to study more seriously Russian and Soviet history. But it was all Soviet history. It really wasn't Russian history. And it was very political. It wasn't social, cultural, or anything else. Uh, because Finns, didn't, Finns had a, sort of a love-hate relationship in that sense. They, it was this enormous country that you needed to understand. But they weren't willing to admit that there was anything worth studying about it yet. Like, seriously. And uh, so I wound up go, going. I had a scholarship to go to Canada, which I had no experience with. There was a, there was a Soviet and East European Studies Institute. This is just at the collapse of the Soviet Union. I just finished an undergraduate, and I was in, I hadn't finished my master's in Finland. And I went to Carleton University in Ottawa, and it became a Russian Studies Institute by the time I was there. So this had changed, and that there I came across a couple of really good historians who were mainly focused on the Soviet period, uh, specialists on Lenin and so forth. But what I did get out of Carleton was an understanding of how to do research, study sources, uh, take, take the sources seriously to a certain sense. But most importantly, I met uh, an 18th century specialist who was at McGill. His name was uh, Valentin Boss. And Boss is sort of an interesting character because... He's, I think, in my own opinion, in my own view, he's 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 a premier scholar of the 18th century. He really loves, the, you know, the broad European 18th century, the Enlightenment, particularly Russia. But he want, he he was born in Berlin, but he his family moved to the Soviet Union in 1933, which was a good year if you were Jewish and you were communists and you were living in Berlin like his family was, and they want. And so he grew up in in Moscow, and during the Second World War. He's about, you know, he's in his 80s now, so he would, uh, and he taught into his 80s, I should say, too. So uh, he wound up somehow, his father was executed under Stalin as being a German communist, and so, which was a bad, and, you know, he was also the specialist in eugenics, which is a strange thing. So he, so he worked in Central Asia to a degree, leading Soviet medical, medical exhibitions or, or expeditions in the 1930s. So he wound up being killed during the Second World War executed and boss actually only found out about it in the late 1980s the details when he was able to uncover the, cover the details somehow his mother was able to get a british pass british passports for the two of them and they took a convoy to london right at the end of the war 45 44 45 and there was a there was a there was a Central European thinker by the name of Arthur Kessler, who wrote Darkness at Noon and others, a very classic former communist, became a big figure in London. And they helped these bosses out, father, I mean, Valentin and his mother. And he eventually became a Russian historian. He went to Cambridge and then he went to Harvard to study under a man by the name of Michael Karpovich. And then Karpovich died and he became Richard Pipes' student at Harvard. And Boss had one advantage that a lot of historians didn't have it those days, which he didn't study for, just was, a, you know, 
accidental. Uh, he knew Russian fluently. He knew the language, and oddly enough, at that point, very few Russian historians, unless they were emigres, actually knew the language very well. And so he's, he developed this interest in this so-called westernization of 18th century Russia, contacts between the English, the Germans, the French, the notion of a Russian enlightenment. And he, he wrote a, one book that I thought that influenced me dramatically, which was called Newton in Russia, uh, the creation of the Academy of Sciences under Peter the Great and how Peter the Great brought these specialists from Western Europe, Dutch Republic, um, from German lands in England back to, to, to Russia and how the, the debates on Newton sort of started to take place. So he's using Newton as sort of a template to study the West sort of cultural connections between Russia and the West. And I just found this book to be thrilling. Study of Peter the Great, study of science, study of history of science, study of culture. And Boss knew a lot of the people at the Pushkin Institute in, in Leningrad. And there was an 18th century sector. And the 18th century was a very safe century to study during this, that period because you could actually do archival work. You could do work like he did. in the, he, he was on one of the first exchanges from the U.S., to Soviet Union in 1962-63. You couldn't do political stuff, but you could do 18th century culture, especially if you knew French and German and you knew Russian and you knew some other languages. It always helped. Latin as well. So you could... You, and the Russian scholars in those days, Pushkin Institute, they knew the same language as well. They had wonderful German. They had wonderful French. Smattering of English. English was irrelevant back then. It wasn't an important language for, for study of the 18th century. And obviously uh, Latin. So... 18th century studies just flourished in the, in the 1960s, and I met him, and I just found him to be a really inspiring teacher for me. Taught me a lot, and on one trip to this, so Russia, when I, I, I wound up spending three years, which is a year and a half more than I should, in uh, St. Petersburg then, and I, w I was originally looking at the, to look, I was looking at a scientist by the name of Bruce, who was Peter the Great's key scientific advisor, but when then I was walking in the archives and I was talking to some of the academicians or some, uh, professors there, I came across, I knew of Lomonosov, obviously, but I was staggered by the amount of information about him and the Jubilee culture and the commemorations and so forth. So rather than write a study of Lomonosov because there had been several thousand already written, I, I was interested in tracing Lomonosov throughout this vast period and looking at him as sort of a representation or a symbol for how you popularize these ideas among the Russians for this period of time. So, and Boss was one of the few people who had written on Lomonosov in the West. He took him seriously. He didn't dismiss him as some Soviet creation. He took the 18th century in Russia very seriously. He loved the culture. He loved the history, which is odd because his father suffered in the same country, right? But nonetheless, he loved it. And so he sort of imparted part of that respect to me to a degree. So that's that's what my real interest in 18th century Russia came from. I find the discussion of Lomonosov interesting because I, growing up and even in school, knew of Lomonosov as a scientist, right, very vaguely. Um, I knew that he did something with science and nothing more than that. But you have it, and in, in your resume of Lomonosov, you list him as being an established poet, physicist, historian, geographer, linguist, and, and many more. Could you tell us a little bit more about his cru crucial contributions to Russian history? Well, you know, I think in, in a sense, the first most crucial contribution is that he, to a degree, 
represented the notion of a hero of Russian culture, somebody who transmitted knowledge to a certain sense, so a symbolic figure to a certain sense, in a practical sense. You know, when, when Lomonosov first came back, in the 18th century, you were not really a physicist or a chemist or a historian. You were a combination of all. So when people call him a polymath, you know, an encyclopedic figure, it wasn't that unusual in the 18th century. So what he did when he came back, he, he worked in, the, in, in geography, helping after the first and second Kamchatka ex, uh, expeditions, compiling uh, information on, on geography. He uh, started to write poetry already in the 1730s when he was about 20, when he, uh, 25, 25 after he, re- when he was in the German lands. So he started, to, he wrote the first rhetoric in Russia, which sent, sort of established, at least for several generations, uh, how Russians would approach, approach the poetic word in iams and I, I, I make the tremeter and a style of, you know, very lofty style of writing and poetry. Uh, he wrote uh, two histories of Russia, uh, one, one a straight chronology, which is brought it up about to the time of troubles in the 17th century. The other one was where he was involved in debates on the origins of uh, Rus. Was, was it a creation of the Normanists or was it a Slavonic creation? And Luminosov obviously took the Slavonic creation that there was no foreign influences. And he wrote a book on, Rus- on Rus up to 1054. And the reason I, you know, uh, that book, by the way, just as an aside, I saw that book widely sold in bookstores just two to three years ago. I saw this in Yerevan at a bookstore, a copy of, of this book on Russian, ancient Russian history to 1054. So that's one of the most reprinted examples of Luminosov's works. Whether it stands up historically is another question, but in any, any case, so he, he wrote these histories, he wrote a rhetoric, he produced an enormous amount of poetic examples. Uh, I think his most interesting poems are to Empress Elizabeth, where he wrote 12 eulogistic poems to her, uh, where there's a nice mixture of science and religion and education. Uh, what else? He established the first chemical laboratory, 1748, which has a long history. Uh, he really was the first Russian academician, actually. There was another one, Tredyakovsky, who was a literature professor of Russian eloquence. They were appointed the same year. So Luminous was really the first Russian scientist. And then he headed the... Um, University, which was attached to the Academy of Sciences, which fell apart. Uh, that's, that's a complicated story. And then he headed the gymnasium school at the Academy of Sciences. So he was in charge of education. And he also helped establish the Academy of, uh, of Arts in the 1750s and Moscow University in 1755. And he, he you know, there's some notion about discovering the atmosphere of Venus he did speculate on that. He he got it right, probably for the wrong reasons. But he did so. So there's a, there's atmospheric. There's uh, he worked on uh, electricity, and by the way, that's probably the best known work that he, uh, of him, where he's he he worked on electricity the same time Benjamin Franklin did. There's actually a small attempted correspondence between the two. Luminous have died before it could actually come to fruition, but nonetheless. Uh, so you have electricity and history and grammar and rhetoric, poetry. Uh, but but I would say that the single lasting contribution would probably be in literature. That his poetic example, the idea of, of how important the ru- poetry is in Russian culture. That example, even, even if it's not followed in practice as a symbol, he becomes this idea of, of somebody who can 
with his poems to the empress, arguing for the importance of science and culture, po poetry becomes an important means of expression, po scientific expression, natural philosophic expression. So it's probably in poetry is, is, is where his most lasting single example is. Even though I don't think it's possible to read his poetry with pleasure anymore, it's such a different language, Church Slavonic mixed with everything else, but you can appreciate it, if not find pleasure in it. And poetry certainly took off uh, after the 18th century. Um, but while you list his contributions as important, you also emphasize the importance of remembering Lomonosov uh, and the remembrance of him by his biographers in Russia after his death. Uh, you also discern the difference between the legend of Lomonosov and how he was remembered for, for various uh, contributions to different fields. You contend that the true interest in Lomonosov, however, rests in his posthumous remembrance. Could you please elaborate on this? Well, you know, I've, uh, you know, he's he's the biography is fascinating, and I deal with that a little bit at the beginning, and it's scattered throughout the book. Although it's not a biography, I, I, I wish you know, I could point out, and I should say, Philip, that there's not a single good English language biography. So that's if anybody out there is ever interested, that's a fantastic uh, work. This, what some very good Russian ones, but what what I found interesting is Lomonosov, who was to a degree a loner. Uh, had a very stormy relations with people around him, uh, was involved in bitter, bitter disputes with the largely, largely German academicians at the Academy of Sciences in the 18th century. When he died in 1765, you have the beginnings of this surge of small-scale eulogies or biographies extolling his contributions to Russian culture. Even somebody who saw himself as an enemy a man by the name of Stalin, who was his was a, was who who was a professor of eloquence and ran fireworks and long career in Russia in the 18th century. At the end, said you know, Lomonosov said to me, "I am his friend." So even people who were enemies started to write these eulogistic accounts, and it took it exploded in subsequent years. And they there's several phases it goes through. Let me just go very quickly. Initially. It was his, the heroic contours of the biography. This is a person from the periphery, son of a state peasant, a well-off state peasant, but nonetheless a state peasant, winds up in Moscow, Slavo-Greco-Latin Academy, then goes to the German lands to study with Christian Wolff, one of the most celebrated philosophers in the 18th century, still the son of a peasant who does not read arguably until he's 20, comes back and then has an illustrious career. But so the first phase is you focus on the on the, this contours. This is a this is an example that of of a you know of a of a of a genius to a certain sense. Uh, but the science wasn't dealt with. The substance of the science, the literature was dealt with, and people debated it and discussed it. But the science was this idea, some idea that its time has passed. But nonetheless, he was an example. In the 19th century, age of Pushkin, at the beginning, that the, 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 the you know this romantic biography of Lomonosov, you know, you have a, just a surge of large-scale biographies. Polovoy, for example, wrote a two-volume, romanticized, wonderful 900-page biography of Lomonosov in the 1830s, which is which is almost completely absent any discussion of either the science 
or the mechanics of his poetry, but nonetheless follows his in blow by blow accounts of his his youth in the north, his struggles with foreigners at the academy. So the second phase is this explosion of biographies where you don't you even you even ignore even more the science, but you look at the the biography, and then it started to fade. And I think one of the reasons it started to fade was figures like Pushkin, who looked at Lomonosov, started to make remarks that, of course, we have no liter we we have literature, but we have no critics, because if we had critics, Lomonosov's reputation wouldn't be what it is today, to a certain sense, in poetry. So you have more critical uh, receptions, and it sort of fades to a degree. But then we have an upsurge again in 1860s when you have the this Lomonosov Jubilee held in Moscow, St. Petersburg, with Dostoevsky, Goncharov, and others are at, and there's suddenly massive collections of works on Lomonosov. But the reasons are fairly simple. I think the Academy of Sciences in Moscow University had discovered that using Lomonosov as a symbol for themselves is a way to argue that they had roots in Russian culture. You remember the Academy of Sciences is still dominated by foreigners in the 1860s, and it's heavy and they're heavy attacked by Russian beginnings of Russian nationalists who say that the Academy of Sciences has no place in Russian culture. Their response: Well, look at look at Lomonosov. He's our hero. Moscow University the same way. Uh, initially, by the way, Moscow University, which as you know, it's it's named after Lomonosov. Initially, it, no, no, there was no connection whatsoever, direct connection. Suddenly, in 1865, you have this association, and then it all fades again. And then suddenly, at the beginning of the 20th century, really in 1911, when you had the 200th anniversary uh, jubilee of Lomonosov's birth, a surge of interest starts to emerge again. And these are professional Russian scientists who are arguing for their importance in pre-revolutionary Russian society. And the figure who I deal with in the last chapter is a man by the name of Boris Minshutkin. And Minshutkin was an historian of chemistry who spent 40 years laboring in archives to discover or rediscover Lomonosov and produced dozens of studies on the topic. And that begins the Soviet, this transition from a pre-revolutionary to Soviet. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is there's not a sharp distinction. The contours of this heroic fighter for Russian science, indigenous hero, battler against foreigners, is pre-revolutionary. What the Soviets did was simply they had, they had the means to make it a mass movement to a certain sense. And throughout the Soviet period, you have this explosion of interest. And I, and I think I trace it in one side that there are probably more than 4,000 publications in the Soviet period on Lomonosov. That includes in 1940, which was a great year, pre, just prior to the war, renaming Moscow University after Lomonosov. Uh, constant jubilee cultures, you know, two fa fantastic, one 1950s era film, one much later, a museum in St. Petersburg on top of the Kunstkamera in St. Petersburg, or Leningrad, and just this, this constant drumbeat of interest. But I do think that the unfortunate thing was, uh, you know, you have the same with Pushkin, and you have the same even with Peter the Great, even during certain periods. But with Lomonosov, it became so state-managed no independent content remained that to a degree it became almost a joke for some people, sort of an anecdote. And I use one of the last things which my supervisor, who was a, was a big fan of Joseph Brodsky and Devlatov, a late Soviet writer, he came across a wonderful anecdote about 
They've locked up building as metro station, the Luminosa station in Leningrad, where he creates a statue of of of, of Luminosa, but nobody takes it seriously. So I sort of end at the end with this idea that this this fantastic myth of Luminosa had become the victim of overkill by the end of the Soviet period. And at that point, whether it sustains itself on its own, and I make this comparisons to a degree with the cultural figure of Pushkin, it's up to, you know, it's it's too early to tell. Right now, there's practically, I, you know, I was in 2011, I went to the, in St. Petersburg, they had a Jubilee celebration again, uh, the 300th anniversary, and it was well attended. They had beautiful books. They had all the exhibits. It's called Lomonosov in the Time of Elizabeth I, which was the same exhibit that they had in 1911. So they renamed it exactly. But, you know, it had it had the same feel of, this is a heroic fighter for Russian science. And the one thing that they haven't done, and I think it's been, it's terrible to this, a figure who is actually quite an amazing uh, historical figure, is that they haven't contextualized him or placed him in a European context. Because in some sense, he is a member of this Republic of Letters, this 18th century European-wide discussion. And the person who commissioned this book for me, by the way, uh, for this, the press on Lomonosov, his name is Gary Marker. He's a very good Russian historian. He's, he made, he's always made that argument, too, that Lomonosov is a, has to be seen in a European-wide context. And that's the, you know, an arguing for the fact that he was purely Russian is an anachronism. You're pushing it back, Russian nationalism, to the 18th century, to a period where it really didn't exist in the way we see it now. Stephen, could you please talk a little bit about what Lomonosov meant to Russians in terms of science? And is there evidence that the Russians attempted to use the image of Lomonosov to build a specific reputation in Europe in the age of scientific revolution as Russian, Russians and Russia being a, a significant element in the advance of science? Okay, can I give you one example, Philip, if you, if you mind? Because I, 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 I took it as an example because I think it's... it's it's in the it's in the section that Menshutkin uh, used, and it's sort of lengthy. And I'll, I'll uh, but but I think it's worth repeating. Menshutkin in the night wrote th- three major biographies, and and at one point, you know, the, the, these are in press runs of eighty to one hundred thousand, nineteen eleven, and one one sentence passage that he writes is really sort of I think descriptive of the whole thing. Lomonosov's principle, his singular contribution is the chemical element as it was characterized by Robert Boyle in 1661. So we have a reference to, you know, this celebrated pioneering figure of the scientific revolution, Robert Boyle, a simple body incapable of being additionally broken down by means of chemical analysis. Little by little in the 18th century, this conception found favor among chemists until after several decades, it was made the basis of, uh, of Lavoisier's doctrine of chem- chemical elements. So essentially, Lomonosov is this 18th century bridge between the 17th century and the chemical revolution of Lavoisier in the, in, the, in the end of the 18th century. So essentially, he's arguing that it is extremely interesting that Lomonosov further conveys about what, what he further conveys about elements and corpuscles. Elements are, in a sense, the atoms of the chemists, and corpuscles are the molecules. We have here the first combination the first unification of two conceptions of the elements, which takes its beginnings from extreme antiquity, the first talks of elements as qualities, and according to the second, the elements are atoms. 
The unification of these two points of view was brought forward by Lomonosov, introducing as the main proposition and understanding of the corpuscle molecule as having exactly the same quantitative composition as the corresponding body as its form. So what he's essentially saying here is that Lomonosov worked in several areas in the 18th century, describing matter, describing oxygen, although he didn't, describing these things. So his contribution popularly is that he anticipated the discovery of the conservation of matter and oxygen, which Lavoisier made more popular in the 1780s or 1790s. Let me add something before I say that, in a sense, Menchutkin's on the right track. Lomonosov was very speculative. He had a mechanical picture of how, uh, you know, this, how the atomic structure works. And his, he wrote a very pioneering work called Dissertation on Heat and Cold, explaining, you know, the movement of matter and, and heat and so forth. And in some, some sense, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And it finds its reflection later. The problem is, for Lomonosov, is that much, much of his work... He start, he, you know, he's, he's in so many different fields. He writes very speculative works in physics and chemistry, and then he leaves it undone, unfinished. So you can take from those works practically anything that you want. What I, you can't, I can say is that in the 18th century context, he was an accomplished physicist who speculated in matters of chemistry, but he was looking back to people like Robert Boyle, 17th century pioneers in chemistry and physics, he wasn't anticipating anything in the future. So in the context of what you were, he was an accomplished, but was he a pioneer in the scientific revolution? No, he wasn't. Did he set, was he trailblazer? You know, Radischev, who was this, the great, a great 18th century figure, and Pushkin later, said that he was a trailblazer in the sense that he was the first native scientist's to pioneer that. And it, and then they make this comment about Lord uh, Francis Bacon. Bacon also didn't accomplish, but he, but he established trails that others will follow. And so in that sense, that's his contribution, I think. He is this role model, and he worked successfully in these areas. It's just that the only problem in the Soviet period is that a lot of historians like Minshutkin, who was a very competent chemist, he felt the need to argue that Lomonosov's work was ignored outside of Russia, but in fact, he anticipated not only Lavoisier's chemical revolution, but Franklin's electrical experiments. So there's a whole host of discoveries that we should assign to Lomonosov, including, by the way, painless childbirth, which I'm not sure how that worked, and a dozen multitude of others. But because Lomonosov was living in a country where science was not yet respected, the traditions were not there, he was sort of outside of, of mainstream discourse. And the only reason I say that that's not true is that Lomonosov, who wrote in Latin, and he wrote it well, he knew the language well, wrote most of his work originally in Latin, the scientific work anyway, and much of it he was translated not until the 20th century by Menshutkin. So the work was known by Westerners. It's just that, to a degree, he was just a step behind them in some of his discoveries. To what extent did the great poets and literary figures of the 19th century dilute Lomonosov's reputation as linguist so much as his actual contributions to literature not being uh, very strong. So how did people like Pushkin and other authors and poets work to make Lomonosov an unimportant figure in terms of uh, literature and writing? Oh, for sure. You know, because we know uh, 
of course, every every Russian would have heard of Lomonosov, right? But they'll read Pushkin, but they won't they won't read Lomonosov, right? They, even the histories that I mentioned are more sort of antiquarian value. Although I think they actually their histories are, are are fairly good. What I think happened is that at one point in the 18th century, when you can be this encyclopedic polymath, people didn't divide up their their, their areas so well. But later in the 19th century, he became him cast as either a chemist or physicist and scientist on one side or a literary, literary figure on the other. But over time, as he, he was only seen as a theorist in literature, somebody who, who wrote rhetorics and grammar, but not somebody who, who, but somebody who was utterly eclipsed by the great 19th century writers, poets. In science, on the other hand, the argument was in the, originally that in in the 18th century was by people who commented on it said that Luminosa's work is interesting but he's behind the times but much later in the 20th century when his chemistry becomes an established profession physics is much more and you suddenly have this new academic discipline I'm an historian of science suddenly then they're going to look at the works and they're going to say well Luminosa in fact was prescient he was a pioneer here are the works and to a degree you're saving salvaging Luminosa in the area that's the most speculative. So you're right. I think that literature, his reputation has declined dramatically and somebody you could read. But in science, which, by the way, you can make another point, Philip, is that it's it's less understood. Like you can read a poem and say that whether you appreciate it or not. But can you really read his tracks on physical chemistry or elements of mathematical chemistry for the layperson and really evaluate whether it's good or not? It's tougher, especially if you have to go to the Latin before you go to the Russian to make the comparisons. So Luminosa is a little bit more remote, so you can, to a degree, be far more speculative as a pioneer. And by the way, I think science, particularly in the Soviet period, when it became such an enormous constituent part of the identity, that education and science, and by the way, Soviet science, and I think the classic account had to be in the 1930s, it must be about 35 or 36, when Pravda had its cover that when they christened Lomonosov the great son of the Soviet people. And they, that's where you have the arguments in modern form, 1930s, that Lomonosov anticipated the discovery of oxygen, but German scientists, remember 1930s, great time to bash the Germans, German scientists, even though many of Lomonosov's friends were Germans, but nonetheless, that he, he was, his work was, was not properly acknowledged due to the enmity of these foreigners at the academy. So he was christened. And by the way, look, look at his background. He's a peasant, son of a peasant, rising to this. He fit the contours of you, what you'd want. Not, not you, if you were Marxist, fantastic. If you were a lover of science, fantastic. And if you weren't un, you know, uncomfortable with Germans at the academy, he also fit into those. So and to a degree, you know, he's, you're right. This, the science becomes more of a subject of study when science becomes more important culturally and a symbol of Russian nationalism, Soviet nationalism, Russian nationalism. Stephen, what does Lomonosov mean to Russia today? Is he still the Soviet product of Russia and Russian pride and a product of the Russian land? Or is he remembered as a person of science and, and a person of knowledge? It's a person... I was going to say, it's a person of knowledge who people respect. Uh, it's a little antiquarian, though, in the sense that uh, he's, his name, you know, people don't see the statues. You know, some people, I remember last summer, a couple summers ago, 
they had luminosa days at in when I was in Armenia as well at, at the Russian center. And somebody said to me, well, did you know that, that there was a crater on the moon that's named after Lomonosov? Which, of course, I did know because during the t- time of you know, the space race, the Soviets named the crater on the moon uh, after Lomonosov, that there were icebreakers, that the museum, you know. So in a s- essence, and then the next question beyond that would be why? And of course, nobody's going to read the science anymore. They might read some of the poetry. They might read the literature. There are many literary specialists who do read Lomonosov, love the 18th century. So in that sense, it's this idea of the first. And by the way, Belinsky, the 19th century critic, was the first one who said, Atyev's father. He is the father of Russian learning. And saying, of course, nobody reads the literature. This is in the 1830s and 40s. But he was the first. He was the pioneer. He was the first chemist, the first real physicist, first chemical laboratory, first grammar, first history. You know, and so in that sense, it's as a model, a role model to younger Russians that he's remembered. And by the way, this is not meant as an iconoclastic I'm going to bash because I think this is, you know, he he was a polymath. But most, you know, one of the things that we, that's unfortunate is in particular in the history of science is that we look for identifiable discoveries. Is he a Newton? Is he a Galileo? Is he a Copernicus? Is he a Franklin? Is he an... He is in one sense. He's Russia's Newton. He's Russia's Copernicus. He's Russia's Galileo. So in that sense, he 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 provides that sort of symbolic importance. Uh, I think the work's not as important. But then again, how many how many British can 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 def- define in any real sense what Newton's contributions were? Italians, Galileo, Poles, Copernicus. You know, so it's more of the national symbol that all of these figures are are, are remembered rather than the specifics of their work. So it's it's so and I, and I think in that sense it's unfortunate that it became such a such as he became such a subject of overkill during the late Soviet period because in essence when people hear Lomonosov in a, the older generation particularly some of them roll their eyes because they were forced to read know this biography and sometimes they're so suspicious of everything that they were they were they they thought that they were that was manipulated that they just don't take it seriously anymore. So people often said to me, Lomonosov, why are we interested in him? There's so many other figures that, that are that, in it's, it's But in fact, as I started this whole, whole thing, he still deserves, centuries later, a good, solid study of his life that takes him seriously, but issues all the embellishments that later history had, because he's, he's well worthy of it. Could you please talk a little bit about how your book adds to the field and the research on Lomonosov and the field of important contributors to the Russian culture? Uh, well, you know, it's 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 hard because let me let me say that uh, at what, when I when I started when I said that in at one point, nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties beginning to fade in the 1980s, when you studied Russian history, the first figures in Russian history who were studying it in North America and in Western Europe, you know, you looked at the, you looked at the Soviet Union and said, what kind of work can I do? What kind of work is, is it possible to me to travel to the Soviet Union to get permission to use archives and libraries? And the 18th century, you could either do the medieval period, which is tougher because, the, you know, you have, it's, it's, it's a different kind of work, or you could sort of sit in this this 
beautiful 18th century where you were talking about the Enlightenment, the Russian Enlightenment, science, culture, literature starts, and so forth. So in this sense, it, it, uh, many of the pioneers of Russian history, people like Mark Ryev and Reis, Nicholas Raisinovsky and others, looked at the 18th century and they produced fantastic works. But then what happened was the Soviet Union collapsed. And already in the late 80s, you could start doing work. And the Soviet period became a point, point where an army of archival rats decided, using Stalin's designation, but, not, but nonetheless, you, uh, uh, could go to the Soviet Union and they were going to rewrite Soviet history. It actually started in the 60s, but in the 80s, it really became a, a surge. And earlier periods of Russian history declined dramatically. You know, the, the, for, for, I, I've listened, by the way, to presentations by Marshall Poe on the whole notion of how early Russian history is deeply neglected in, in the field, and he's absolutely right. And so in this sense, 18th century is an area where it's, it's marginalized. So where, does my, so, so where does my work... The 18th century thing, parts of my book, which are the first chapters on the origins, how Luminosov created his own myth, fashioned his own biography or autobiography... I think we'll have interest to people who are historians of science, who are interested in the notion, which is a very popular, which is a very current study, which is how scientists were worried about their own reputation. How do I, how do, how do I take, make, make a scientist, and when it's not even a term until the 1830s, so a natural philosopher, how, how do I make a natural philosopher, how do I situate them in a society where, there's, where they have no social standing? So that will be interest of historian of science and culture and so forth. The Soviet period, I think, will be interesting for, and probably more relevant and more interesting to people because some of the comments that I had from friends and, and colleagues who read the book, almost all of them initially said, well, I, we're unfamiliar with the 18th century, but we like the Manchukin chapter. We like the Soviet period. We like the idea of creation of Soviet heroes. We like the idea of how science was viewed during the Soviet experiment. So I think in a sense, the two century long focus of the book will appeal to, you know, will for the for the dwindling band of luminosa of an 18th century people, they'll they'll l l enjoy the first chapters. People who are in the Soviet period will like them in Shutkin and later. You know how this myth played in the Soviet period to a certain sense. There is one incident, if, you, if I have a second, that I think that sort of followed through. And uh, I gave a paper. I came out. It's not a major focus of the work because originally I was looking at this idea that luminosa, you know, as, as a couple of incidents, you know, things that are really sort of marked the man was this idea that he anticipated the discovery of oxygen. And the idea, you know, in the 18th century, the general notion was there was something called phlogiston, which is a material that was present in objects or came was, was, in the, was in the atmosphere, and fire or was started by this introduction of phlogiston. That's the expl explanation. Oxygen, there was no notion of oxygen yet. Well, the idea was generally that Lomonosov uh, did not believe in phlogiston and he anticipated Lavoisier by a series of chemical exper experiments whereby he showed that if you don't introduce air, the weight of the objects do not increase. So he's trying, he's inching, without ever mentioning oxygen, he's inching toward the idea of oxygen. Well, you know, 40 years ago, even Soviet scholars were saying, well, the problem with that is he really didn't do any experimentation that's implied. So we, he, it might be true theoretically, but we really can't prove it. So that's that's one But what I really found interesting over long term was this idea that Lomonosov was Russia's Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, and I found it interesting when I came across two statues, in, which I hope that they're still there. This is near his birthplace. There was a small statue of Franklin on one side, 
and Lomonosov on the other. And this idea, and it's an old, it's an old, old sort of trope in the literature, is that, that like Franklin, revolu- you know, they're trying to cast him as a Franklin in the sense that he was involved in multiple fields, and the Soviets added this idea that Lomonosov was a revolutionary, who hated the regime, which is of course not true, but nonetheless. But what what I find interesting in the experiments is that uh, Lomonosov probably read about Franklin's experiments. They were printed in St. Petersburg in 1751, the same, just weeks afterward. He started to replicate these experiments with a German colleague by the name of Rickman. And, and after two years, and probably one of the, the most famous science, scientific incident in Russia, Rickman, they had set up a, a, a device, a, a thunder machine, where they could, where they could test, light, where they, they hoped to, to draw lightning. And Rickman was killed in the experiment. And Lomonosov was there. And it became widely commented across Russia to a certain sense. And I think that what, what's poignant about this whole thing is that Lomonosov almost immediately wrote to Shuvalov. Uh, Ivan Shuvalov was an enormously valuable patron of these signs in the 18th And he said, this example must be used as a way to get support for Russian learning and science. In essence, I'm look, this thing, which has followed for two centuries, in the 1950s, they actually had a Franklin uh, sort of jubilee in Moscow, which re- replicated these events. This idea that the stu- study of science is, is a Russian thing. It's pioneering. It'll transform the country. It's dangerous, but we have to support it. It's something that I, saw, I see as, as such, such an enormously important part of how Russian science is seen in the country, which is... It's not foreign to us. It will. Not, this, we have this vast country that we need to understand and exploit, and not in the negative sense. And Lomonosov's already calling attention to that in the 1750s. Some, some of these wonderful things where he's self-fashioning, where he's calling attention to certain things and saying, "This, you know, you know, this is an example of what we must do. Look at look at uh, these Western scientists, how they're treated in their countries." We need to be treated the same way. Some of it's just because he wants more personal support, but some of it is because he wants he sees the value of natural philosophic the study of nature to Russian culture in the 18th century, and how that occurs. By the way, it's it's a it's a theme in the first part, which is why Lomonosov is chosen to be this mythological figure. You know. Years ago, Lindsay Hughes, who, was, who died, uh, she's a British historian of Peter the Great, she threw a footnote, into, which she sent to me in one of her books, which was this article by a Russian historian, was Lomonosov the son of Peter the Great? Because Peter the Great had traveled to the north around 1711 when Lomonosov was born, and therefore one plus one equaling 87, there must be some connection. But I think in a sense, the broader context is that Lomonosov was in fact a descendant, the spiritual descendant of this Petrine modernizer. Peter the Great modernized the country. Whether it's a cliche or not doesn't matter. He destroyed the old and he created something new. But he himself could not did not have the the, the stock, the the, low, the the indigenous base to build it. But Lomonosov is the living incarnation of Peter the Great's reforms in Russia. And that what I think is the thing that's tied the whole thing for for now for nearly three hundred years. And I think it's a book like this that can truly inspire a autobiography of Lomonosov because his work is crucial to understanding Russia as a whole. But you know, but haven't you noticed also, though, Philip? Like when you, I was talking 
happened the other day about Pushkin. He, there's, there's a handful of Russian figures who are lionized in their own country, but I think you'll find your, your own students have never heard of Pushkin. Or of Lomonos. Lomonos are far less likely. And when, you know, Philip and I have spoken, we've spoken a little bit about teaching. And I, I, I gave my students in a, in a Russian reader, which they used to assign to Western Sith students in the 60s here and to Russian histories, they have part of Minshutkin's 1930 biography of Lomonosov, this eight or ten pages. And I gave it to my students about a week ago, and some of them read it. And they were interested because, you know, he fits, you know, it's the life itself is interesting. My, my supervisor was at one point worried that I was trying to demolish an idol. I wasn't, because he's an, he's an, what, but, but I was trying to muddy the waters a little bit and sort of look at, you know, look at him more as a cultural figure to a certain sense. So I'm hoping at one point that this study of some of these 18th century figures, I mentioned to somebody named Radischev, who wrote about Lomonosov. Radischev is always seen as the great revolutionary Democrat in the 1780s, 90s, who wrote a fantastic book called Journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow. There's not a single English language biography of him that's 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 up to date and recent as well. So there is, and in, in essence, he became tied to the Soviet experiment as well. So many of the p- figures who were see, were, you know, their biographies were sort of distorted because they fit some types of Soviet era dictates. They've sort of faded, unfortunately. And Pushkin though never faded. Uh, Peter the Great is still, as you know lionized in the country, right? Because he's the modernizing figure. Who, who, but, but other figures, uh, Soviet-era figures, the Decembrists in 18, the 18, Decembrists of 1824, there's, there's, not a, there's not a good study of the Decembrists, the first so-called revolution in modern Russia, right? And that's because it became to a degree uh, too associated with the Soviet field. So maybe a new generation will have to come on, come on you know, in both Russia and in the West and take a look at these figures. You know, Philip, one of the problems with, with Lomonosov, though, is that, you know, the, the people who did the best work on, on Lomonosov in the West were Germans, German scholars, fantastic work. But our, our new generation of Russian scholars don't really read German. They don't pay attention to German scholarship, and which is unfortunate because they still do amazing work and uh, better than English language scholarship on 18th century Russia. And, and so maybe we'll, you know, in the, the future will tell. So I know that you are not going to be taking on the work of writing Lomonosov's biography, but could you please tell us about the project that you are currently working on now? Oh, I'm moving. I'm moving as as far away as, as possible. I think you know what happened was, for personal reasons, you know, my wife's Armenian. I've been going to Armenia for years, spending. We, that's where we spend our summers, uh, which is a, quite a change from South Dakota in the winters in South Armenia in the summers, but. Uh, some years ago, I became acquainted with a, an, uh, with a museum called uh, Sergei, Pad- uh, a Soviet-era film director by the name of Sergei Padajanov, uh, who, who was an interesting figure because he is an Armenian, Padajanian, I, I suppose is the original, original name, uh, and, uh, but he was born in Tbilisi, and he grew up in Georgia, and he didn't know Armenian, actually, so it's, a, it's easy because my Armenian is... is, is rudimentary and what happened was then he then he studied in moscow for several years at the film institute and then he wound up in ukraine where he was most active and then he wound up back in georgia after after two arrests uh and then he just before he died the uh, this is 1990 so in independent armenia has is on this verge of creating this 
new national history, a new culture, becoming independent, everything in that. And what happened in, uh, then was uh, the Armenian government said to Parajanov, who had no interest at all in Armenia, as far as I can tell, said, please come to Yerevan. We're going to build a house and a museum for you, which is unusual because the country was poverty-stricken and people were fleeing and, and so forth. So I came across this museum and the director, and I've decided to write a study of Parajanov's films, uh, looking at Armenian, Ukrainian, Soviet. I'm looking at Armenian, Georgian, Ukrainian identity, history through his films, and basically the life of a Soviet director, film director. And it's a wonderful thing for me because I spent a, a year and a half in Armenia about a year, two years ago, on a Fulbright Fellowship. And it's wonderful to speak, to talk to people who actually knew the subject of my, of my work. So I did a lot of interviews, particularly in Georgia. Uh, and Padajanov made sort of three interesting films, I think. One, one in Ukraine which takes, is about routine identity in the 1960s. It's called Shad- In English, I think they, it's called Shadows of, of Forgotten Ancestors. And it was well-received in the Soviet... This was 1964, 65. And it was well-received, even though he was later accused of being a Ukra- uh, Ukrainian nationalist. The Armenian Georgian Padajanov was accused of being a... And then what happened was he went to Armenia and he made the film that is the symbol... The modern, the classic Armenian film called Svet Granata, or Color of Pomegranate, 1968. And this film was roundly condemned. It was about a poet, Esayat Nova, 18th century Armenian poet. But like most films, it's really about the 1960s and 70s than it is about then. And I should add that Padajanov, married twice, was also gay, and he was arrested for sodomy during twice during the Soviet period, and he was jailed for four years at one point. And the film is rife with hidden messages about uh, pushing the limit of Soviet censorship in the 1960s. In any case, uh, he made this film, it was condemned, it was released in the West, and it's really his, It's for Armenians, it's their best-known film. It's very elliptical, it's hard to follow, but it's a, it's a brilliant film. In Armenian... And Russian, it was it was dubbed in parts of it in Russian. Padajan, I should say, didn't did not know Armenian well. He knew he every, he was a Soviet. He was a very Russified figure. And then he then he made a film on Georgia, and then and then finally, uh, you know, and this is at a time when Georgian nationalism was emerging. And one of the reasons he claims in one of his letters that he left Georgia was he was feeling very uncomfortable as an Armenian in Georgia in the 1980s. And then he makes a very odd decision that he's going to make a film in Baku. So he's going to go to Azerbaijan at a time when Azerbaijan and Armenia are nearly at war in the late 1980s and he goes to Baku. I don't know if it's because he's tone deaf or because he's provocative and he does he makes a film that, he makes a film then as well and then he returns and he goes to Armenia and he dies one day after arrival. In, so he spends one day at, in Armenia and the odd thing, the thing about the museum that I found interesting is that he has become, so I'm sort of on this national hero, national iconic uh, sort of continuing stream, is that in Armenia he's considered a heroic figure. But I should say two, two things that I found odd. I look at, I've spent a lot of time with lots of Armenians from, who are in his films, and they're not comfortable with two things in his biography. One is that 
he he really quite enjoy, he he was he the Soviet Union was a comfortable time for him. So he's not an Armenian nationalist by any stretch of the imagination. He was not a nationalist at all. Uh, and the second part is Armenia is a relatively conservative country, so his homosexuality was something that Armenians find difficult. Even, you know, and they chopped up the films. If I can say this on New Books Network, I'll give you one example. There's a scene in Sayatnova, which was excised and so forth, where you have clear indications of a monk who was actually being, or a figure in a monastery, who was played by a very famous Georgian actress. Uh, so he sort of mixed genders in, in, in his roles at that time. Who, who, and there's a sudden burst of milk across the screen, which he in his script calls nocturnal emissions. So he's obviously indicating that there's some sexual relationship going on between the monks and so forth. But even if I, when, I, when you show this, it's very difficult for them to admit that, for them they see it almost as a flaw, that there's a, there's, there, it's a feat of clay for their idol. He has to be an Armenian nationalist. He has to make films that extol Amer- Armenian nationalism. So, my, so I'm going to spend the next several years going to Armenia, to Georgia, which is a wonderfully exciting place, by the way, and I'll have to sort of get a little Georgian along the way, and to Ukraine, to try to piece together a study of, uh, of Padajanov. And the second project, by the way, which is much smaller, when I was in Armenia, I was teaching the course that I was taught. I first arrived in Yerevan, and they said to me, you're, so you're supposed to teach Russian history to us. We're not interested in Russian history right now. I said, well, I want to teach a little bit of it because that's what I'm prepared for. It's this Fulbright grant, and they, they said, teach one seminar to our graduate students at Yerevan State. And I said, well, they said, well, if you can't, if, well, what we want you to do is talk about the Armenian genocide. And I've done that in coursework. It's one of the areas I, I, I teach. And so what I'd like to do after that very interesting year, because Armenia, if there's one thing that defines them historically, or two things. One is the, the fact that they were the victims of a genocide. And the second is that the outside world doesn't recognize the fact properly that they were the victims of a genocide. So I, I'm working with an Armenian scholar, and I think what we're trying to do is put together a little book that's used for classroom purposes. It's th- through a press that does a lot of documents translate on, on the Armenian genocide. But that's a long-term thing. Short-term, it's Soviet-Armenian film. So that's as far from Lomonosov as you can imagine, right? But it's close to my heart right now. So I love Armenia, I love Georgia, it needs a, and I love the films. And Padajanov's just an exciting figure. There's only one difference between him and Lomonosov, though. Lomonosov, I had thousands of documents. I had a massive source base in St. Petersburg, archival, scholars. Padajanov, at times, never had a television, no phone. He wrote no diary. He wrote only scripts. And he only had one book. He loved Fellini. He loved other films that he could find. But you, it's hard to chase, put together his thoughts. And so that'll be my challenge for the next few years. And again, we'd like to thank Stephen Utasawa for joining us here to talk about the invention of Mikhail Lomonosov, a Russian national myth. Stephen, thank you very much. Philip, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been a production of New Books Network. My name is Philip Falgach, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Thank you.